Thank you very much, uh, Ian, and good morning, everyone. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Hugh Cox. I'm uh, relieving today in the event of Graham not being with us. Our prayers are with Graham and Michelle and the family, but it is a privilege to be with you this morning, and especially on such a, a wonderful day in the, in the Christian year. Around the time when I was finishing uh, secondary school, sometime after that, uh, I was accompanied by my mother to a performance of the St John Passion in the Sydney Town Hall in, uh, in, in the city. This is, of course, the famous oratorio by Johann Sebastian Bach, which recounts the events of the final hours of Jesus' life, recorded in John chapter 18 and 19, beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, moving to the trial before Annas and Caiaphas, the trumped-up trial, then appearing before Pilate, finally the, the condemnation, and then the journey that, through the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows, as Jesus made his way to the cross, the price of execution. The great German composer might have been shocked that this performance of uh, the Passion was not in German, but in English. Shock, horror. But the message came through loud and clear. And if you read an account in John's Gospel of the, the crucifixion, it is one of the most powerful pieces of narrative ever written. If you're familiar with St John's Passion, you will recall the amazing choral pieces which punctuate the performance. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas comes with the soldiers to arrest him, Jesus asks, who do you want? And the chorus comes back in shrill tones, Jesus of Nazareth. And as Jesus is questioned by Pilate, he asks Jesus, it was your people and the chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? And Jesus replies, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, Pilate said. And Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this came into the world, to testify the truth of truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Those monumental words. To which Pilate replies, what is truth? Later, as the crowds are being worked up into a frenzy, Pilate makes an attempt to release Jesus, as we've read. And then the chorus comes back in deafening tones in Bach's chorale, if thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whoever make himself a king speaketh against Caesar. Powerful, dramatic uh, words recorded in John's Gospel and captured by Bach in his chorale. But the most striking thing for me in the exchange between Pilate and Jesus is on the question of power. I wonder if you noticed that, the way the word power comes through both in word and in attitude in this passage. Indeed, in John 19, verse 10, Pilate announces to Jesus, don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus responds with a sense of irony, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. I thought immediately of the words in Psalm 62 and verse 11, which hang like a, a backdrop against this passage. God has spoken once. Twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. Do you believe that? 
that your conviction this morning, that even as the events of the crucifixion were unfolding, that power, authority, belongs to God. Looking at the events of the first Good Friday, it seems like many of the players are preoccupied with power. The chief priests and their officials were fearful that their power was being eroded by the popularity of Jesus, so they took steps to have him eliminated. The Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, challenges Jesus with the words, as we've seen, don't you realise I have power to either free you or to crucify you? And when it comes to the crunch, he showed himself to be weak and caved in to the power of the Jews. And the greatest irony of all is the way that Jesus speaks about power right throughout this gospel. After the discourse on the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10, uh, Jesus speaks about laying down his life as his vocation. I quote, The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority, power, to lay it down, and authority, power, to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. You can read about that in John 10, 17 and 18. The quest for power. It was Lord Acton who made the famous statement, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. In his book, Power, Providence and Personality, Walter Brueggemann, a biblical commentator, says this, human life is a strange tale of securing power, having power and losing power. The reality, risk, seduction and cruciality of power over our capacity to understand it or to explain it. Those words could equally apply to the main players who are acting out the drama to secure the conviction and death of Jesus. So let's look at these three significant characters for a moment. First of all, Pilate, the interplay of power and fear. He can speak of having power to either crucify or release Jesus, but in the end he abrogates his power or authority and gives in to the wishes of the mob. Even though he confesses that there is no basis for the charge against Jesus, he hands him over to be crucified. Pilate was appointed the governor of the province of Judea three years earlier. He was a morally weak man who could be easily manipulated and tried to hide his flaws with a show of stubbornness and brutality. He held the office in Judea for 11 years and was eventually recalled to Rome and finished his diplomatic career in obscurity. The Jewish people loathed him and those who organised protests were dealt with very savagely. In the trial, if we can call it that, recorded in John 18 and 19, Pilate is more interested in political point scoring than in doing what is right and true. He didn't engage in this charade out of any passion for justice, but out of some ego-building satisfaction that he gained from putting the Jews through, uh, jumping through the hoops and so on. A simple way of impressing them with his power. Now, when court proceedings degenerate into political point scoring, you are in trouble. In the film regarding Henry, which some of you might have seen starring Harrison Ford and Annette Bening, Ford starts off as a ruthless, self-seeking, immoral lawyer. 
but he is involved in a terrible accident in a shooting in a drugstore and slowly has to go through a period of hospitalisation and rehabilitation. And through this process, he totally changes. Those things which were previously unimportant to him, noble, right and good things, now become very important, the very things he would have ignored and trampled on. Pilate was a man who never managed to make that transition. In the end, he was uncomfortable with power. He showed himself to be weak, confused, fearful, and motivated by self-interest. The interplay of power and weakness. Secondly, of course, we have the Jewish authorities. We might say controlled by the power of evil. Their behaviour shows that they are the agents of power, people fearful of losing power. They show themselves to be eager to clutch at power, to cling to power. Their antagonism towards Jesus has been growing since early in the ministry. They call in question his claim to be the light of the world in John chapter 7. And Jesus puts his finger on the problem in John 8.37 when he says, You are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word? In the end of John chapter 8, there is some, some wanting to stone him to death. And a specific plot is hatched to kill him in John chapter 11 on the occasion of Lazarus's raising to life. There is indication how much they control power in John 11:48 when we read, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And a few verses later, we read the ominous words, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Controlled by the power of evil. This is the group of people who dragged Jesus before the Roman governor. What chance would he have of getting a fair trial if this group had anything to do with it? They are prepared to lie and engage in all sorts of corruption in order to secure the death penalty. What sort of people do you conjure up when you think of the expression evil people? Josef Visonovic was personally responsible for the death of over 40 million of his fellow countrymen. He's better known by the name Joseph Stalin. He in fact gained the name Stalin being a man of steel by his contemporaries who felt that he had a steel-like power. Stalin once trained for the Christian ministry in the Orthodox Church in Tbilisi. But he seemed to make a, a determined break with that and his belief in God and turned his back on it completely. Instead, he embraced Marxism and became Lenin's notorious successor. Stalin's cruelty is legendary and he worked on the principle that inflicting pain on people, you thereby gain power over them, control over them. When he lay dying, his daughter Svetlana reported that he was plagued with terrifying hallucinations. Indeed, he fell back on his pillow after thrusting his fist at the sky and died. He may be regarded as an atheist, but I think better to be understood as an anti-theist, one who openly defied the God who he knew existed. What does evil look like? What does the face of evil look like? Does it have to be Stalin or Hitler? Or could it be the boy who walks into a classroom and runs amuck with a gun? Or the girl on the checkout who kills her own child? 
or the teenage boy who steals Reeboks from another just to get the other boy's shoes. As one famous person said, the line between good and evil runs through the centre of every human heart. It's against this backdrop that we see Jesus' statements about power, which you need to read the whole gospel to grasp. Indeed, they're altogether different from the indifference of Pilate and the brutal hostility of the Jewish authorities. So what do we say about Jesus' attitude to power? I call this demonstrating the power of love. Indeed, Jesus' life and death is a commentary on the power of love. It appears that Jesus is the victim of the abuse of power, but I wonder if that is truly so. His statement in John 19 and verse 11 suggests that he has an understanding of power and authority much greater than that of either Pilate or the Pharisees. In response to Pilate's statement about, I have the power to release you or the power to crucify you, Jesus says, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. I think Jesus understood those words of Psalm 62 and verse 11. God has spoken once, to us have I heard it said that power belongs to God. As Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem and all that awaits him there, he is the object of a brutal plot, the victim of a weak man's cowardice. Jesus regards the laying down of his life as a voluntary sacrifice in order to fulfill his purpose of coming into the world. What does he say in John 10 verse 18? I have power to lay it down of my own accord and power to take it up again. The story of Good Friday is of the sinless Son of God voluntarily laying down his life for the salvation of a world lost in sin. Focusing on the cross, as we do today, lifts us out of our self-centeredness and complacency and is a remedy to the me-ism that seems to be plaguing our current generation and even entering the church, the meism, the preoccupation with self. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote from prison to his friend Eberhard Bethje nine months before his execution, only the suffering God can help. He must have been thinking about the cross. I read some time ago of the writings of the Japanese Lutheran scholar Keizon Kitamori, who wrote his remarkable book, The Pain of God, in 1945, not long after the atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He says he was inspired by the words of Jeremiah 31 and verse 20, where God describes his heart as yearning or pained for Israel or even broken. You remember those words from Jeremiah, words which are so appropriate on Good Friday. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? As we think about the cross of Christ, the question comes to us afresh, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? To quote Kitamori, the heart of the gospel was revealed to me as the pain of God. The pain of God concerns the interaction of his two essential qualities, the qualities in his character, the pain over sin with all its awful consequences, which we see all around us today, and his desire to reach out in love to guilty sinners, the interplay 
of those two things in the very character and nature of God. And this is supremely revealed in the cross. And God's plan continues. Whenever his wrath and love engage, his justice and mercy continue to be in tension today. If we look over the last 50 to 60 years, there have been two striking examples of human suffering. The first are to do with hunger and poverty on a global scale. And we see that all around us. And the second is the Nazi Holocaust involving the death of six million Jews. There have been others, of course, the terrible killing fields of Pol Pot in Cambodia, the atrocities in Bosnia, and we could go on. What does the cross of Christ have to say to such situations? What do we say to the person who rejects the truth that God is loving when they focus on suffering in the world around us? What do we say for those who have been the victims of Boko Haram or the people of Egypt at this time where two of their churches have been massively bombed, Coptic Christian churches? What do we say of uh, those in refugee camps coping with hunger and disease, unemployment, lack of education and all other terrible things? John Stott quotes Rolf Italiander's story of the poor man from one of the favelas of Rio de Janeiro who climbs laboriously up to the colossal statue of Christ which dominates the city. You might have seen the statue when the Olympics were recorded there. It's 2,310 feet high or about 700 metres high. Just imagine the height of this amazing statue. Indeed, it's called the Cross of Corcovado. The poor man speaks to the statue. I have climbed up to you, Christ, from the filthy confined quarters down here in the favelas to put before you most respectfully these considerations. There are 900,000 of us down here in the slums of that splendid city. And you, Christ, do you remain here at Corcovado, surrounded by divine glory? Go down there into the favelas and live with us down there. Don't stay away from us. Live among us and give us a new faith in you and in the Father. Amen. What would you say in response to such a plea? Wouldn't it be to say, I did come down to live among you and I live among you still in the sacrificial acts of Christian people around the world giving their lives to show the love of Christ and to fulfilling the command, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who despise you. So what does this say to us today as we finish this morning? For those struggling with pain and suffering, it says to those like those in the favelas of Rio, that Jesus entered our world of suffering and walked the broken path of suffering all to the way to the cross, the Via Della Rosa, the way of sorrow. Indeed, we need to understand the interplay of God's great heart for a lost world seen in the suffering of Christ. The German philosopher Nietzsche stumbled over the significance of the cross. He ridiculed the idea of God's suffering in this way, but for those who understand the love of God, it is revealed at Calvary, and there we see things differently. This is not a cold, remote God who is detached from the world, but God who entered into the, our painful condition, who loves us and wants us to respond and return to him.
The Bible tells us that there is an evil power present in the world, a power of a malevolent force working behind the scenes through human agents that have surrendered to the lie and therefore promote wickedness. We should not be surprised by that. But the Bible also contains the good news of the solution to all of this. The God who made the world in which his creatures have consciously turned their back on him has taken steps to combat evil and rescue us from our moral and spiritual chaos. The darkest moment of the universe is ever known with evil unleashed in fury and perversity saw human beings like you and me laying hands on the Son of God and simply murdering him. But something else was happening that day. God was actually working the greatest good. And the only way God could do, the innocent one, Jesus, was suffering all the crimes committed against a guilty humanity. The judgment we deserved was laid on him as he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. All those who turn from their own way and trust in Jesus Christ discover that they are free from the slavery to evil and sin. They rejoice in the wonder of that truth that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their sins against them. What great good news that is. Against the backdrop of the power of evil, we see the amazing power of love in Jesus Christ, our crucified Saviour. Let's bow our heads in prayer. We thank you, gracious God, for this special day in the year. How good it is to take time apart from the busyness of this world, the rough and tumble of life, even the painful things we witness on our television, and recall afresh the wonder, the amazing love of God shown in the cross of Jesus Christ. Refresh our hearts with that truth. Change us, we pray. Make us more like the Lord Jesus to love him and to serve him. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.